J. Guru Dave. Registration is now open for Tom's 2024 Australian tour. Once again, Tom will be giving knowledge sessions and group meditations, as well as a four-night, five-day rounding retreat in Jeringong. If you haven't learned Vedic meditation yet, Tom will be teaching Vedic meditation while in Sydney, as well as advanced techniques to those who have already learned Vedic meditation. Tom's Australia tour runs from June 6th to the 30th, and you can find out more at tomknowles.com slash Australia. Jay Gurudev. Welcome to my podcast, The Vedic Worldview. This is Tom Knowles, my producer, Eric Kahane. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Eric, today we're going to be speaking with Graham Wood, who is a journalist who has written for The New Yorker, The American Scholar, The New Republic, Bloomberg Business Week, Culture and Travel, The Wall Street Journal the International Herald Tribune, and is a contributing editor to The Atlantic. He was the 2014-2015 Edward R. Murrow Press Fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations, and he teaches in the Political Science Department at Yale University. He is also the author of The Way of of the Strangers, Encounters with the Islamic State, the definitive account of the strategy, psychology, and fundamentalism driving the Islamic State. Welcome, Graham. Thank you. Graham, for our listeners, would you give us an idea of the difference between what people hear is Islam and also what they hear it means to be a Muslim, quotes, unquotes? Well, the word Islam means submission, and a Muslim is simply someone who submits. So a, a Muslim, in the view of, of Orthodox Islam, would include many people who were even before the time of the Prophet Muhammad, and the Jewish prophets, Jesus, and anyone since who has submitted to a single God. So anyone who is a, a follower of a monotheistic creed, and who nowadays would also have to uh, follow the prophecies of, of Muhammad. All right. So how has that played out in modern times? You know, we understand that Islam is a religion or a belief system that originated with Muhammad and has come to us in modern times. And now, as with all religions, we see so many different splits and brands and branches and whatnot. Yes, you're right to point out the differences between many different types of Islam, both historically and in the present day. So nowadays, when we think of, of Islam, the, the major split that we would probably look at is between Sunni and Shia. The Sunnis being Muslims who believe that the followers of the Prophet, uh, to whom other Muslims should submit and, and look for guidance, are learning people, people who are not necessarily the household of the Prophet, but who have studied the scriptures of Islam, the history of Islam, and by virtue of, of their expertise in that deserve deference. Now, the Shia are the ones who, who think that it, it is also important that these people be from the household or lineage of the Prophet. And nowadays, that, that's, that's really the, the, the major split within Islam and the major source, I suppose, of, of conflict. It hasn't always been that way, but right now, when we look at a group like ISIS, we, we should first think of them as fighting other Muslims. Mostly, uh, mostly Shia. Graham, thank you for that analysis. I read your fabulous article in The Atlantic that I found extremely edifying and educational and, you know, really opened my eyes to much of the misinterpretation that we have in the West about what's actually going on in the mind of Islam, if you like. How do you see most American Muslims fitting into the categories that you've just now described? Well, first of all, most American Muslims, like most Muslims worldwide, are, are Sunni. And also, like most Muslims worldwide, are, are opposed to the Islamic State's version of Sunni Islam. So I think the first thing we, we have to notice is that American Muslims are well assimilated into American political culture, uh, despite the, the recent difficulties and Islamophobia that you found in, in uh, mainstream politics. 
the major theological differences are these. For American Muslims, there is a very, very weak sense that Muslims must live in Muslim territory. There's a very weak sense that Muslims must be policing the boundaries of what Islam is uh, to such a degree that they would actually kill people who fall beyond those boundaries. Whereas with the Islamic State, one of the main things that they've been urging on their followers is a sense of division that Muslims must live in Muslim territory and must zealously police the borders of who is Muslim and who's not and react, frankly, murderously toward those who, who are not. And, you know, uh, living in Muslim territory, would that account for the current, what we would see as hegemony of the the need to expand the territory, the geographical territory of ISIS's hold on that part of the Middle East, at least. Yeah, that's that's the, that's exactly what you should be picking up on here with with ISIS's uh, focus on territory. You know, th- there have been times when Muslims have not cared that much about these issues. Usually, times w- w- when the borders of Islam have been indistinct, and you know, if if you're a Muslim scholar who's in Mecca and there are are Muslim-dominated lands for a thousand miles in any direction, you're not going to be thinking too much about whether Muslims have to be living in Muslim territory. But then you find periods like during the the period in, when, of the caliphates in, in uh, Andalusia, where there actually was a border that touched on Christian territory, and Muslims were thinking a lot about what their obligations were as to whether they could live among Christians or whether they had to be in Muslim territory. And ISIS has picked up on that strain of thought, that kind of insecurity about where one's place is in the world. And, you know, we're, we are a more globalized civilization, Muslims going back and forth from Muslim territory and not, and, and in most cases living comfortably in non-Muslim territory when they decided to do that. And ISIS has really harkened back to those days of insecurity and said, no, that's not okay. You must live in an Islamic state. And now the ISIS would say in the the Islamic State. Graham, obviously, and according to what I picked up from your article in The Atlantic, you know, the words were that Islam was eager, uh, the Islamic State, I should say, is eager for the apocalypse and uh, are taking a kind of apocalyptic approach to creating absolute upheaval. How accurate is my way of saying what I read? That's exactly right. Uh, the Islamic State has, has, from its beginning, told its followers that the end game here is the apocalypse, that there are things that Muslims can do, must do, that will hasten the end of the world. And it's not an immediate thing for them. They, they seem to think that within a matter of decades, rather than, say, months, the world is coming to an end. And there are things that the Islamic State itself is doing to hasten that. It occurs to me that in a time when... in 1945, when the United States made a strategic decision to deploy the first nuclear weapons over Japan, and that since that time there's been a rush by governments, some of which were elected, some of which were not elected, to be able to replicate that kind of destructive power. But now with you know modern uh, systems of communication, it seems to me that it uh, would be an idea that, you know, people who are extremely unhappy, and not just uh, ISIS, but almost anybody who finds themselves in a minority and extremely unhappy, might find it, you know, for them a solution to acquire such kind of weaponry and, you know, vaporize a city and then hold everyone else to ransom. What are your thoughts about that kind of apocalyptic vision? I think that ISIS would happily accept a nuclear weapon if it were given to them but they luckily don't have anyone who's willing to, to offer it. Their, their view of how the world's going to end is, is actually really specific. And there are things in it that sound a bit like nuclear warfare, but in general, no. It, it's, there's actually an emphasis on returning to the technology of destruction that you would have seen in the early medieval or late antique period. So ISIS, you, you see in some of its propaganda, these staged images of people on horseback with swords. That's because prophet is alleged to have said that when the final battles come, the greatest of men will be on horseback and slicing the air with swords. So it's, it's, it's definitely not 
accurate to say that, that ISIS is eschewing modern technology, but that they do have a, a kind of antique view of, of how the how this is all going to, to, to go down. And, you know, they might tactically use nuclear weapons if they ever get the chance. I, I doubt they will. But uh, in, in general, it's going to be much more of a, like an, an old style of combat combined with magic which is also a big part of, of what looks to us like magic, which is also a big part of, of their view of the end times. Thanks for that, Graham. I, I think you've, you've certainly fleshed out, for me at least, and I think for my listeners, some kind of an idea of the, the mentality. Eric, you might have some questions. In the Vedic tradition, has there been any foreshadowing of the apocalypse? Is there any correlation Yes, indeed. There are cyclical behaviors that, you know, there are periods of dark ignorance, which then give rise to a few leading the many into more and more enlightened. And when I say more and more enlightened, I don't mean exclusive to certain people, that a spread of an enlightened way of approaching life, and that means, by the way, just to remove it from the mystical sound of it, inclusivity and, you know, better crops and civilization thriving and inventiveness and creativity and you know mutual acceptance of each other's cultures and so on that version of enlightenment that as that grows by the few leading the many there's a certain point reached that ironically the enlightenment is so great that people begin to forget how they got it and in that you know relative to today in that relatively ideal society the very idea that you need to close your eyes and meditate twice a day has become forgotten because everybody's just feeling so good. And so then it only takes one generation in which members of that generation do not rise into that fully enlightened state that very quickly there's a shutting down and you know rapidly an age of enlightenment turns into a fairy tale memory that's you know perhaps sung to children at nursery time but Actually, nobody has any recollection of anything like that happening, and then there's a decline back into the darkness, followed by yet another revival where the few lead the many. And this cycle of you know uh, loss and revival of knowledge, in this cycle, according to the Vedic view, we are currently in the midst of an age of ignorance, something akin to a very dark night, but with a full moon coming up. In other words... We're on the cusp of an age of enlightenment. However, the Vedic forecasters didn't say that this was going to be a smooth transition, that it could be a smooth transition. It can be to a more evolved and more all-embracing broad-mindedness, but it could be a rough transition too. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting to watch over the next few decades as we see, you know, smoothness versus roughness. However, the Vedic concept is that it is inexorable, inexorable or uncompromising that a more enlightened age has dawned, and that more enlightened age has already got traction. Whether it's rough or smooth, that's a whole other question. Graham, what is the purpose of religion in today's world? As, as someone who's not an especially religious person is looking at this, you know, maybe a bit more like a social scientist, someone on the outside, I tend to think of religion as a very broad category of things. Usually, I find that religious people, certainly ISIS, when they think of religion, they think of it very narrowly. Religion is a process of, of submission according to a revealed text and revealed tradition, whereas when I think of religion, I, I think of it much more broadly. I, I think of it as a whole um, set of human activities that, that people t take part in that involve things that are hidden, things that are unknown, things that are not detectable through, say, social science or science, things that are, are uh, having to do with the first things, the last things, the most important things, what's, what is fundamentally good, what is fundamentally bad. And so uh, the, the question of what is What's the role of religion in the world? I, I think it, it is, it's, it's larger than most religious people think because the, the category of things that it encompasses is way beyond any particular religious tradition and is simply 
it's simply enormous to, to, to put it bluntly. Tom, is the Vedic tradition a religion? Since gods such as Ganesh and Shiva are part of the Vedic tradition, does that mean that we are practicing a polytheistic religion? Well, the Vedic approach to life and living is religion as we sh as religion should be because of re lagare it binds one back re to bind back or to take back go back and lagare to bind to bind oneself back to one's source the real question here is are what the the lifestyles and cultural beliefs and so on of groups that operate uh, large scale cults is what i think of them as uh, you know, the difference between a cult and a religion, generally speaking, is just numbers. You know, the large-scale, high-magnitude cults that offer themselves as religion perhaps don't actually meet the standard of what religion is supposed to be. So unless there is a direct experience of one's core inner self, which is that place deep inside you, that silent place, where you have oneness with the totality of the universe, the unified field, where you experience that, unless that's happening, then a thing that calls itself religion isn't actually religion. Now, as regards Ganesh and Shiva and all of these Vedic, quotes-unquote, devas or gods, uh, these are all consciousness archetypes. You know, in Hinduism, they've been externalized and made into statues and made in, and that was a that was the Indians attempting to replicate what they saw the colonial masters doing in their religions. And when they saw statues of Mary and Jesus and Joseph and so on, and, you know, people going to external symbols and externalizing the concept of God, modern-day Hinduism began to do that too. But in fact, that's not the Vedic way. The Veda itself, in the first mandala, 164.39, for anyone who wants to look it up, it states the following, that all knowledge is structured in consciousness. And the words are Richo Akshare Parame Vyoman, that all knowledge is structured in consciousness. And then it goes on to say, Yasmin Deva Adivishve Nishedu, which means, and by the way, all of the gods, the archetypes of human consciousness, also exist in that internal consciousness field. The idea being that, you know, there are expressions of your nature. There is a Shiva-like expression of your nature. There is a Vishnu, the maintainer-like expression of your nature, Shiva being the destruction operator, by the way. There is a Ganesh-like structure or archetype embedded deep in your consciousness, and you're going to come into contact with these archetypes. You're going to come into contact with elements of your own being that are expressions of the way the laws of nature work. Now, to take those and put them into statues and then to worship them externally is considered by the Veda itself to be a misguided practice. These are consciousness archetypes. Graham, are we at war with the beliefs of Islam? Do they conflict fundamentally with the views of the West? Is there any common ground to build on? So my answer to that would be a bit complicated. There is definitely common ground to build on with some of the classical orthodox views that, that Muslims have had. You know, there is a sense, say, I mean, in, in, in Islam is one of the pillars of the faith that one should give charity. One should, should think about those who are less fortunate than oneself. There is also a, a tradition of prayer and worship that I think any secular person would, if, if he came to understand it well, would, would sort of envy it requires belief, so that if, as long as you're a secular person, you can't really partake in it. But Muslim prayer is uh, it's it's it is a meditative practice that has secular benefit, could have secular benefit if secular people were able to, to, to be part of it. So these are are in and of themselves aspects of, of, of common ground with that secular people could have that secular states could see with, with Islam. As with Christianity and most other religions, there are other aspects that are are fundamentally at odds. Now, there are, historically, there have been interpretations of Islam that, that have been quite chauvinistic, have been uh, clearly opposed to, to anyone who doesn't take uh, a, a fairly hard line about certain aspects of, of Islamic practice and defers to Islam as, as the kind of king of religions. Now, that's clearly in 
fundamental opposition to what we think of as pluralism, liberalism, uh, and our form of government in the United States. And I, I would I would point out that that you know, there there are sort of Christian supremacist traditions and texts that we could point to, certainly Jewish ones, and these ones too are in in fundamental opposition to secular liberal values. But again, most Muslims, just as most Jews and Christians, are as citizens of a liberal state, uh, happy to put those aside, put a, put aside the, the points that are in fundamental conflict. That's what distinguishes ISIS. They are absolutely unwilling to put those things aside, which is, which is why I, I think we see the, the conflict that we have. Tom, does ISIS espouse universality, peace, happiness? Meaning, what is the common ground between ISIS and the Vedic worldviews? Are there definitions of these terms different than Vedic? I think, yes, there, there is. In fact, I believe that all the founders, the original founders of every religion, had some fundamental experience of I and the universe are one. Now, the way that that expressed itself at their particular time may have been that they had exercised all other options and then went warlike. But then to look at that his, historicity and say, well, that's the way we need to be now, may not be legitimate. In other words, an original founder, like the Prophet Muhammad, you know, the opening lines of the Quran, Beast Malah, you know, in the name of Allah. And what it's basically saying is there's a sound, a name, and that name, Allah, has in it all the characteristics which, if you can embody it, has totality in it. The very opening line of the Quran is basically a call towards transcendence. But founders and teachers teach from their state of consciousness, and the followers can only receive from their state of consciousness. And with the long passage of time and knowledge being passed from one mind to the next, you know, word of mouth, there ends up a movement towards fundamentalism, which is basically to create religion by rote, to create religion that is memorized and written down, and these are the laws of nature, and these are the laws of God, and only this can be followed. And the fact is that the evolutionary demand of our world is that of adaptation. And, you know, so therefore fundamentalism, literalism, literalism is the parent of fundamentalism, and literalism and fundamentalism together go to remove all sophistication from any approach to religion and culture. We lose sophistication once we go down that track. There needs to be a direct experience. People have to have a direct experience of that least excited state, however they get it. I believe that all the founders of the major religions had that experience. They tried to teach it, and then that teaching got distorted over the long lapse of time. What does ISIS really want? What are they seeking to do? The main thing ISIS wants is a state in which Islam is paramount, a resurrection of former ways of governance that, that Muslims had in the earliest days of, of Islamic civilization, a resurrection of, of forms of law as well. So they, they want to turn back the clock and have a caliphate on the prophetic model and by doing that, they want to see Muslims flock to their state to leave the West and ultimately to have a conflict between the Islamic State and the West and the West's allies who, are, who include many, many false Muslims. They think that by doing this, they will uh, hasten the return of, of Jesus, the coming of a prophesied political figure called the Mahdi, and the coming of the Antichrist and great battles that will sort of kick off the end of the world. I think the destructive force of ISIS is a very good wake-up call for the complacency of the world. You know, right now, we sit in Western countries, we overcharge each other. You know, I charge you, you charge me, everybody charges everybody the maximum that they can possibly charge because... You know, you want to be able to have this experience of sitting with your cafe latte made exactly the artisanal way that it's made, you know, with your gluten-free bread and so on. We don't want to 
have toxicity, so we don't allow surfboards to be made in America. It's illegal. It's too toxic. We want to be able to ride the waves, but we don't want to make the surfboards here, so we get the Chinese to make our surfboards because they don't have such strict laws about occupational health and safety and toxicity and whatnot and pollutants. And then we bring the surfboards back to America and surf our waves with them and feel all natural and everything. I think the bottom line of what I'm saying is that we in the West have become complacent and we're also hypocrites. We live a life where we make the assumption that our way of life is the way and it's sustainable. And in fact, it's anything but. You know, what the way in which we are living is causing millions of others to have to reduce their standards. And now what we're beginning to see is that there's a threat to our complacency. And that threat is basically that there is a culture that hates us and would love to, in a very public way, destroy everything that we stand for. If we are, in fact, interested in living life in a way that is sustainable, both environmentally and socially, if we are interested in having lives that have meaning psychologically and spiritually, it's time for us to awaken and examine our inventory you know, to see what do we have that can actually give us and make us into a population that gives back to the world more than it takes. And I think that that is the need of the time. And any time that there is a flashpoint and a, an extreme threat to our way of life, like ISIS, for example, then it forces us to examine who we are and what we stand for. And that's considered by the Vedic worldview to be part of a natural process. Tom, evil versus good. How do we discriminate between the two when dealing with different cultures? Forgiveness, acceptance, pacifism versus the need to stand up to aggression and brutality. On the Vedic worldview, you know, if we're informed by some of the ancient Vedic writings like the Bhagavad Gita, you know, you have the spiritual mentor and guru of a young man who is a member of a family who've been disfranchised by their cousins. And, you know, Krishna by name says to his student Arjuna on a battlefield, now you have to go and fight those cousins of yours. And for the next many chapters, uh, Arjuna resists and says all kinds of terrible things will happen as a result of war. And Krishna says, well, you have to establish yourself in that inner state of being because there you'll find that the laws of nature have been so far skewed, so far made into imbalance, the only solution right now is war, and you have to do it. But you should learn to meditate first, he says to Krishna, to Arjun. Krishna says to Arjun, so that you can do this not as an individual, but experiencing this as you know the, the need of the time. So if I use that as, you know, one of the primary documents of the Vedic times, basically what it's saying is that although there's a strong preference never to kill, there's a strong preference to behave in ways that are clearly by any standard evolutionary, expansive and inclusive, that if things go terribly wrong, that, you know, war is in fact one's only option, but if it happens then there should be minimal killing. It should be got over with as quickly as possible. And that really the goal is complete peace and inclusivity. That's the Vedic worldview about these things. And I would go on to say that there's no good versus evil. There is three. There are three operators, the creation function of nature, the maintenance uh, operation of nature, that which maintains anything that's evolutionary or continues to be, and then the destruction operators of nature, which destroy anything that has become irrelevant. And that if the creation operator function is strongest in one's awareness, then one is innovative and inventive, adaptive and expansive. If maintenance is too strong and you're trying to maintain and conserve old and now irrelevant values, then you trigger the movement of the destruction operator, which then becomes lively and dominant and begins moving around destroying things that have become irrelevant. And so the Vedic worldview doesn't really have a good versus evil concept. It has a concept of these three balancing agents that are constantly 
either in balance, moving out of balance, or regaining balance. And it doesn't have an idea of a God that is angry with aspects of its creation or which disapproves of aspects of its creation. That's perhaps a major difference. Graham, what aspects of religion are universal truths and which are in need of modernization to be more accurately reflective of the knowledge and needs of today? Is there a way to update Islamic teaching? Is there a way for Islam 2.0? Well, I'll start by saying that that universal truths, in, in, in my view, are, although I do believe that there are universal truths, I, I, I don't, from a religious perspective, have any idea what, what those are. I can tell you, though, that, that you know, it's it's partly because of my my views on religion, which I said before, as being a, a a very large aspect of human activity that I that I that I hesitate to 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 speak about about religion in in any kind of specific way. I can talk about Islam and I can talk about ISIS's view of what truth is, but to to speak generally about religion, I think is 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 dangerous and usually leads people to say foolish things. So I, I, I want to be cautious about that. Now, when ISIS thinks about universal truths, they take great pains, especially in their process of recruitment, to unmoor the idea of universal truths to universal notions of, uh, or to unmoor the idea of truth, or moral truth in particular, from universal notions of what is good and evil. You know, I, I've had conversations with ISIS recruiters where they have said to me very clearly, we understand that you think that what we're doing is, is evil. You know, we're, we're practicing slavery. We, were cutting people's, we are cutting people's heads off. These seem like bad things to you, and we, we get that. We, we felt the same way ourselves. And this universal revulsion that we had is the same one that you had. But what we've had to do is to revise our notions of good and evil and understand that the true truths are not the ones that, that one just imbibes you know, with mother's milk by living in the West or really anywhere in the East as well. Instead, there's a process of disinhibition and understanding that what, what, is, what is true is not what is right in front of you. It's not the instinct of good and evil that you have, but something that you have to be educated into because of the distortions that you've experienced growing up in this milieu of, of universal belief in human rights and dignity of people as people. So I, I think that the, the, the main takeaway from this is that ISIS's view of good and evil, first of all, is highly, highly polarized. There, it's, it's deeply felt and deeply ingrained. And all the assumptions that we have about what is good based on what, just what, what, what seems to us to be a hateful thing to do, a murderous thing to do, has to be discarded when we start thinking about ISIS's way of, of, of seeing the world. They themselves acknowledge that they have a kind of topsy-turvy view of the moral universe, and we have to understand that before we start talking about them. Tom, do you want to answer that from a Vedic perspective in terms of what is archaic and could be modernized? I think what's archaic is much of what and, you know, I'm speaking specifically about the Vedic worldview, which has its origins in India, although the ancient Indians uh, claimed that it wasn't Indian knowledge, that it was universal knowledge that could be experienced from within. The Veda is not a book. It's a level of consciousness. Basically, the idea is that at some fundamental, deep, quiet place inside of a person is the evolutionary force itself that is playing out at all times. And what the need of the time is, is changing all the time. And so adaptation is considered to be one of the greatest qualities that comes out of that experience when one meditates. Another fundamental idea is of the Vedic worldview is that, that you cannot stop someone from behaving according to their level of consciousness, that people experience and see the world only through their own state of consciousness and they're going to behave accordingly. If you expand the consciousness state, then you'll see an alteration in behavior, which will be that of inclusivity, that of generosity, that of kindness, that of, you know, finding in one's fellow man all of the 
qualities of evolution and being able to nurture those. The Vedic worldview, I must hasten to say, is not observed today largely in India. That religion in India, which has become known as Hinduism, the word Hindu is actually a British word for describing what they thought were all of the behaviors of Indians in general. And the modern-day Indians have lost touch with, and they agree with this, by the way, there's very little dispute about this, have lost touch with the ancient Vedic worldview and range of techniques and experiences. So there is a, a, a movement worldwide, and I'm one of the spokespersons for that, to reawaken some of those fundamental Vedic ideas as opposed to what has become modern-day Hinduism, which as a religion uh, really suffers from many of the shortfalls that we see in so-called Western religions, none of which are actually all that Western unless you're a Native American, and, uh, and the, the religions that have all come out of the Middle East. Uh, Hinduism, as it's practiced today, uh, reflects very little of, in fact, the Vedic worldview. Tom, I had asked Graham a bit about updating Islam. And my question to you now, criticisms of Vedic, one of the things I found was, this is a direct quote from the Vedas translated, you woman never look down, never up. Indra has said that woman has little brain. Can you discuss a little bit about gender inequality in the Vedic tradition and how can we update archaic ideas? Well, I think that, you know, first of all, as a Sanskritist and scholar of, of Vedic Sanskrit, I regularly cast a lot of doubt on the accuracy of translation. However, taken out of context, you know, anybody could be found saying almost anything at any time. The broader view of the Veda is, in fact, this, it's famous for this, is that uh, men and women have a variety of gifts, all of which amount to an equality of benefit to the world, that men and women are equal. That's the true Vedic worldview from ancient times. What has become of that in modern-day Hinduism, I'm afraid to say, is uh, rather shameful. Modern-day Hinduism is an attempt by modern-day Indians to piece together and patch together uh, much of the impact of being having become colonized country and wanting to imitate and put into their own religious structures some of the more controlling and demeaning aspects that we see uh, prevalent in so-called Western religion, when it came to India, sadly caused the Indians who were colonized, the colonial Indians, to try to compete. And what we saw as a result of centuries of that is what we call modern-day Hinduism, most of which has completely lost touch with the Veda. When we read the Veda broadly and in its proper translation, you know, there are some Victorian translations, most of which are not accurate. We see that, in fact, the whole emphasis and sympathy is with a broad-spectrum relatability between male and female. And, in fact, in the pantheon of Vedic, uh, quote-unquote, gods, these are impulses of creative intelligence or personalized laws of nature, uh, we see as many male figures as we see female figures, feminine and masculine, are there in both in extremely large numbers. And there is even uh, a, a view, uh, which is the strongest and most prevalent view in the Veda, that the universe itself is feminine. It's a womb in which all of us exist and sport and play, that our universe is actually a feminine womb. So, you know... I think this is all going to be about, you know, interpreting properly, translating properly properly first and then in perspective and then seeing how all that plays out. One of the interesting things is that in any religion you can cast about and try to find positive things that are said. You might find one or two lines here and there, positive things that are said about women or equality or, you know, things that are uplifting, but this may be... these. Things may be 
bits of flotsam and jetsam, these quotes in a sea of, you know, an angry God who's disappointed with his own creation and who has condemned it and now is to be loved for now trying to save it. And, you know, the God who's disappointed with people and the people who rightfully so feel completely undeserving and who are born into a kind of disgusting sinfulness that has to be, from which they have to be, they have to have salvation. So, you know, none of those ideas have any currency in the Vedic worldview. The Vedic worldview is that you are that totality and the extent to which you're suffering is the extent to which you have yet to realize fully and then actualize the fact that you are that totality. Talking about updating the Vedic tradition, the puja or gratitude ceremony, why can't that be changed? It seems very traditional and a bit religious to me. It's a very good question, Eric. For the listeners who don't know what puja is yet, there's a ceremony that lasts about three minutes It's a ceremony of gratitude that is performed just before a student who wishes to learn Vedic meditation learns their individualized mantra or sound. In that ceremony, a teacher sings in a tuneful voice all of the names of the masters who came before her or him by way of reminding oneself, first of all, that I'm not the innovator of this, to awaken and invoke some of the qualities of those teachers into one's own awareness for three minutes to demonstrate to the student that this is, in fact, the this ceremony is the imprimatur of authority, that this is something that's come from an ancient tradition. It's not something that's been innovated at Stanford University last year and that we're experimenting with. It's been around for thousands of years. And that there is indeed a tradition. It's um, a technique that the sounds contained within the puja, the sounds of the names of the teachers have been known to be mantric. That, that is to say, it has a calming, soothing, and quietening effect. The visual aspects of it, there's a, a candle, there's a beautiful photo, there's the ceremonial uh, offering of fruit and flowers that each one of these offerings is something which once upon a time you would have physically had to bring to a master. This all represents a very streamlined approach. More than 60 years ago, you would have had to hike up to Jyotirmath, you know, which would have been an eight-day trek from Haridwar, carrying with you a basket full of flowers and fruits. And you may have waited for days for the master to come back from walkabout and then been subjected to several days of waiting and you know some examinations of why it was you wanted to learn all of this what you intended to do with it your sincerity and whatnot and at the end of that still a puja would be done for three minutes and a mantra would be given what we're doing today actually represents a a very streamlined version of it our experience is that uh, when meditation has been taught even in our tradition without puja then the effect that it has on the student is one of making the process of learning much more superficial. That is to say, the the failure for there to be any ceremony. So I liken it to perhaps the way that when there's in a courtroom setting, a judge comes walking in and the bailiff may say, all rise and everybody stands. And in comes a person wearing a robe and who sits down and, you know, everyone sits. And so then there's the initial or initiation into the recognition that there is authority and tradition in the room and that this is going to be a process where there's receptivity to a process of adjudication. We have all kinds of ceremonies like this in the West that are we have forgotten that they exist even though we participate in them regularly. And uh, we've just found that this three-minute ceremony, in fact, is one of those things that really gets students' attention, quietens them, calms them, but also demonstrates authenticity. And in fact, it does represent an extreme streamlining of what was once the case. And, you know, as regards openness, we're always open to there being evidence that there is a better way of doing it. What about updating mantras? 
Can that happen or not? Mantras also have been updated, and this is again something that has happened over a period of centuries. Mantras actually are changeable over a period of time based on the state of the collective. Right now, we're living in a very inflammatory time, and we're living in a time where the greatest difficulties have to do with fear, anger, and excitation. And the mantras that work best right now are those mantras which give each individual access to the least excited state as quickly as possible. There could come a time when those the mantras that are given out in order for people to meditate effectively and to meet the need of the time could change. And this has happened historically. And so there's, there's a process of constant review of, the, of what comprises the purity of the teaching. The purity means not the tradition, it means the effectiveness. And so purity of teaching is a statement about effectiveness more than it is a statement about custom or tradition. Graham, has ISIS been created by our foreign policy, meaning U.S. meddling in Muslim nations' affairs or perhaps are taking Israel's side in the Middle East, etc.? Is there any truth to that? There is some context that I think is helpful. ISIS has views that have existed before and haven't been as popular as they are right now. And I do think that it has, the popularity has something to do with U.S. foreign policy in Iraq and the opening of space in Iraq and actually much more so in Syria because of the Syrian civil war, which has allowed these, these ideas to take root and to expand and to create a state that has been a rallying point for a lot of people who otherwise would perhaps have these ideas but go about their lives because there's not much they could do about those ideas. That said, I, I think the, that's, that's the sense in which U.S. foreign policy matters a great deal. I think it's important, though, to see that, that most of the ideas that the Islamic State thrives on have existed long before, uh, um, long before the present day. In some cases, before the existence of the United States itself. I mean, the intolerance that the Islamic State shows is very similar to that of the early Wahhabi state in the uh, 18th century. So it's, uh, it's, it's not as if this is new. It's an old thing that is given new life by some, some I think, poor decisions that have been, been made by, by the U.S. and others. It's also something that you find gaining popularity or with some popularity in areas where the United States is, uh, is a fairly minor concern. I mean, you, you find people in Rwanda who are excited by the Islamic State, in the southern Philippines, in Indonesia, in Bangladesh. Of course, the United States is a hegemonic power that's all over the world, and that's for good, good effects and bad. And so all of these places are touched by American power. But I, I think it would be a stretch to say that American power or American support of Israel has caused it to be. It's, of course, a necessary context, but it, it's, it's not going to explain the existence of the, these ideas. It certainly can't explain the existence of these ideas before the United States ever thought of Israel even as a twinkle in its eye. Graham, if I may uh, jump in, where do we go from here? I mean, you know, I know that you don't have all the answers, but, but you must have some ideas about how things could be done better. How can we make it better in your view? Yeah, so I, I, I think one of the earlier questions I'll circle back to about the reform of Islam, things that, that Islam can, can change. I think, first of all, that many Muslims see Islam, first of all, as being changed by ISIS. And the hope there is for these Muslims who are opposed to ISIS is essentially a reactionary one to dial back the clock until the point where ISIS didn't exist. And that, I think, is, is unlikely ever to work, just because time goes in one direction, at least in my view of the world. And the, the changes within Islam that ISIS represents are, are permanent ones. They're about things like whether you need a, a priest to, to interpret text for you or whether you as a layperson can do it yourself. That's never going to change again. It, it, it changed in Christianity and the Reformation in Christianity. And it's happening, happening in Islam right now. So the first thing to do going forward is to recognize the permanence of these changes and think about ways to, to accommodate them in the modern world. 
the other thing to do from the perspective of you and me as as non-Muslims and as citizens of a country that that has no religion officially as as part of its government is to realize that we're on on the sidelines for this debate. Muslims are having the debate themselves, and we can't do much about that. What we can do is look at the ways in which the world has changed by our politics and behavior that empower groups that are like ISIS. And those principally mean the permission for those groups to to, to flourish in states that are, are out of anyone's control, Syria, Iraq, and then the larger field of recruitment, which includes states in the broader Middle East and much of the world, places where poverty is rife, and more, most of all, where the sense of possibility that's felt by citizens, especially young people, is weak. There's a feeling that governments have spent all their credibility, that they have a predatory view of their own citizens. This is a huge problem, and it's, you know, it's, it, it'll take decades or centuries to solve. But that's the root of this, is people looking for meaning and finding it in ISIS, using old ways of, of being Muslim and new ways of being Muslim. And the search for meaning is something that, that you know, there's no policy that we've so far found that, that, can, that can alleviate it. But we have to understand that that's going to be part of, of what is causing people to go to ISIS, they should have other alternatives other than ISIS that would be as meaning-giving as it. I really enjoyed Professor Woods's um, concept that, you know, Israel was created to allow, you know, Judaism to be practiced within a structure that, you know, lived its own life and people were free to get fully into that culture to the fullest extent of it and see how sustainable it is. I like Professor Woods's idea, if I interpret it correctly, that, you know, let people who want to live together in these ways, if they are considered by outsiders to be archaic, who cares? Let people live the way they want to live inside of a boundary and see if, in fact, they can demonstrate to the world that this is a more sustainable way, that this is going to bring more support from nature. It's going to bring flourishing. It's going to bring wondrous things. If it's true, then why not let everybody do that? Now, if it turns out that that is somehow made feasible and that that can be done, and yet there's still aggression to the outside, then there may come a point where diplomacy and negotiations have really been exhausted. And at that point, whoever has the unfortunate task of bringing about warfare had really better know what they're doing because that in this modern age, we can't really afford to, because we have technologies of killing now that kill indiscriminately women and children and populations by vaporizing them in hundreds of a second a nuclear technology, we can't really afford to go down the track of having a destruction competition. There are too many competent destroyers in the world for us to really get into the business of world war again. And so there's a pressure on us to find these other solutions first. What is the step between diplomacy and war? Is there one? I think there is one, and and that is for you to look as though it's just not worth attacking you. That, you know, the the step between diplomacy and war is, well, we did our best to be friendly and to negotiate, and now if all you think is that you're going to continue and there's going to be attack, then there needs to be a demonstration that attacking is actually going to be mutual assured destruction. And that deterrent, I think, is the the final straw before actual engagement of conflict. Are some religions worse than other religions? Are some more wrong than others? Yeah, I, I, I love this question, although it's, a, it's an obviously a very difficult one. You know, a, a lot of people would say no religion is better than another. There are big traditions and there are bad Christians, there are bad Jews, there are bad Hindus and so forth. 
And I think even those people, though, if you said, well, okay, well, Islam might not be any worse than Christianity or better than Christianity, but how about ISIS's version of Islam? Is that one not worse than Christianity or worse than, say, Presbyterianism? And, you know, from a secular perspective, I think we can say that, yeah, religions that are denying the dignity of human beings that are enslaving, sexually enslaving as well, people are, are perhaps, they have some things about them that are worse than other religions. And ISIS's version of Islam is certainly one that is in deep, irreconcilable conflict with standards of decency and goodness that have been accepted by the vast majority of human beings on this planet, including Muslims. So I, I, I do think there are interpretations of, his, of Islam that are especially sinister and that should be fought, just as there are of Christianity as well. I, I, I mean, we go through all the religious traditions and, and note our least favorite among them, but I, I don't think it would be a very productive exercise, except to say that, that they're, they're there. Um, you can find them in almost any tradition, and they are, you know, they're, they're distinguished usually by their adherents thinking that they are so much better than others that that, that treating them in inhumane ways is, uh, is sacrament. What can be done at this point? Within Islam, most of the things that can be done are things that can be done by Muslims. There are many Muslim clerics who have been saying, at the top of their lungs, in Muslim audiences anyway, have been saying, you know, Islam has a kind of antinomianism, a emphasis on direct interpretation of scripture that is opposed to the long-standing traditions of Islam, which have, have been very rule-based and very institutional in its, in its traditions of scriptural interpretation. So that's, that's one attempt to put the genie back into the bottle. And as you can tell, I, I think that it's unlikely to, to work. What can be done, though, is a process of interpretation that we've seen in other religions, including Christianity, where you find some people who are taking a very zealous line about, zealous chauvinistic line about their version of, of the religion. And in time, their interpretations are uh, extinguished. They're, they're, they're sidelined in favor of other ones that, that nonetheless take on board some of the hermeneutic revolutions that they've been part of. So the Protestants tradition in Christianity had in its earliest days strong strains of fanaticism, even murderousness. And I think that would be it would be unfair to characterize today's Lutherans or Presbyterians as overwhelmingly fanatical or or, or, or murderous. So it is a matter of centuries before that, that transformation takes place completely. But it's it's starting out right now in Islam, and ISIS is the the very earliest crisis in interpretation. So give it time, give Muslims time, and uh, one hopes that the same transformations would take place. Tom, from the Vedic worldview, can you answer that? Thanks, Eric. The Vedic worldview is that of survival of the fittest, that any way of living, of life, of experience, of daily routine, of activities that are exemplary of what it is one quotes-unquotes believes in, that, you know, it will play out in a way that it should be scientifically measurable, that we should be able scientifically to measure what it is that is actually the better, to use the word better, way of thinking and living and being. And that should measure out as greater happiness, more longevity, improved health, improved social relationships, greater productivity, and basically a thriving society. And so the Vedic worldview isn't really concerned about what it is that other people believe or live by or whatever, but it offers practices and techniques which, if you do them, and it doesn't exempt itself from those the effects of those things being measured. In fact, it encourages measurement. That if you live in this way, measurable change will occur. Now, I think that over a, enough period of time, and as Graham pointed out, it could be you know, decades or centuries, there will be a human adherence to those philosophies, those beliefs, those practices, those techniques that come from those beliefs 
that actually demonstrate that they have evolutionary power. And, you know, the old tired ways of killing our way to freedom or killing our way to fearlessness or killing our way to righteousness, these things have been tried many times. And it's turned out that we are less free, more fearful, and less righteous by attempting to kill our way to those ideals that we have. And so the Vedic worldview is that, you know, everyone needs to basically relax and enjoy, but with a very pointed angle of taking the mind to that least excited state daily and finding in that place those fundamental touch points with what it is that's actually evolutionary. Graham, for me, thank you very much for pulling out the stops and making it possible. Tom, it was a great pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you, Graham. I hope we can do it again sometime in person. Yes, anytime. Tom, thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure doing this series with you. And I'd like to ask our listeners to please leave reviews uh, on iTunes. It's helpful for algorithms of getting discovered and to be promoted within iTunes so that we can get the word out. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Jay Gurudev. If you're enjoying these podcasts, I'll spend a moment talking about how you can make your individual contribution to the group effort of these podcasts. If you're enjoying this and feel that you're getting something from it, there's a way you can help us make this commercial free. Go on my website, look up the link for the podcasts, and make an individual donation. Thank you.